oftentimes we call Satan, and rightly so, the tempter, but biblically, his primary work is not tempting, but accusing. In fact, his, his name, Satan, means accuser. So, his, so every time you say Satan, you're, you're, you're identifying that that's his role. Revelation 12.10 identifies that the accuser of the saints who accuses them before God day and night is cast down in Revelation chapter 12, right? So accuses the saints before God day and night. That's a tireless ministry of accusation. In Zechariah chapter 3, actually you could turn there if you wanted to, and you'd see, you'd see a court laid out in which... I think it's Zerubbabel, is all disheveled. His clothes are a mess, and he's standing before the Lord, and the Lord's like a judge. And Satan comes and accuses him and is, and is pointing the finger and saying, like, this guy's, this guy, he's worthless. He's a, you, you need to condemn him. And then, and then no, 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 he's a, he's a stick plucked out of the fire. He's been rescued, and God's made a covenant and made promises, so it's for, his, it's for God's own sake. It's for God's own covenant promises that he's going to be spared. And, and what the angel says is the Lord, well, actually, it's the angel the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. He's re- it's, it's a fascinating scene. But over here is the accuser. Here, here's, here's the man as he is. He's disheveled. He's not perfect. But he's a man in covenant. And he's standing before the Lord. Here's the accuser saying, look at him. He's, he's trash. Condemn him. Condemn him condemn him. And over here is the advocate, and the advocate's not saying, oh, he's, he's innocent. He's amazing. He has a good heart. None of that. None of that. Rebukes the devil, and then it makes an appeal, not to his goodness, but to covenant, to God's goodness in having mercy. The whole scene is very pointing forward to Jesus. All right, but, but in that scene, Satan is that accuser. Uh, another passage, Luke twenty two thirty one. Do you remember this? Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. We talked about that in here one night, I think, on Psalm 1, that when, you, um, when we were talking about what is chaff, and you know, the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away, right? You take the wheat, you, you cut it, you bring it home, and you beat the tar out of it with a stick, and then you throw it in the air and the wind carries the chaff away and the grains that you want fall to the ground. Then you take the grains that are actually the wheat and you take them to the millstone and you grind them into flour and you make bread. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Why? Why? What does Satan believe about Peter? Does Satan believe there will be any wheat or will he believe it's all chaff? And he, think, well, he thinks it's all going to be chaff. Ain't going to be nothing left when we're done with you, boy. Let me sift you. I'll, tell you what, I'll show you what's left. It's an, it's an accusation. Well, Satan doesn't mean it as a refinement. The Lord allows it. It, it actually kind of harkens back to Job, doesn't it? Job 1.9. What's he doing? He's in Job, how does the story start? One day... The angels come before God, and here comes Satan. He's been roaming around. What you been doing, Satan? I've been roaming around to and fro. I've been investigating people. What does he say? God says, have you considered my servant Job? And I always wondered, why did you have to bring up Job, bro? And God's like, because I actually believe in Job. That's why. And Satan says this, Job 1.9. Does Job God fear God for nothing? Doesn't he just love you for what you've given him? He doesn't love you. He loves you blessings. He loves your provision. He loves your protection. He loves himself. But if you'll just let me at him, if you'll just let, if you'll just let me take his stuff, if you'll let me take his health, if you'll let me take his kids, if you'll let me mess with him, I promise you, God, he'll, cr- he'll crack. He'll curse you. Because what he's really after isn't you, God. It's an accusation. It's an accusation. He only loves you for, for himself. Because that's Satan's ministry. Same thing with Peter, Simon Peter, I think. If you'll just let me at him, you'll see. You'll see what he's made of. And what does Jesus say? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, 
But I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you've been restored, strengthen your brothers also. And guess what happened? He did stumble. But guess what else? He got restored. Why? Because Jesus prayed for him. Interesting stuff. Do you relate to any of that? Do you ever felt like maybe you were being sifted? Don't we all, says Tom. I think we do. I think everybody relates to this. The Bible calls it condemnation. Modern, the modern world calls it shame, regret, remorse, self-loathing. We sometimes call it low self-worth. Uh, we call it um, being a failure, being a disappointment. I'm ashamed of myself. I've not, I'm, I'm no account. Or in our low moments, we'll compare ourselves to our relatives from the past that we don't respect. I'm just like my dad. or I'm, You know, just... And you can say, like, let's say we had somebody in here who was like, I'm not a Christian. I don't even believe in Jesus. I definitely don't believe in the devil, you know. And, and I would say, that's okay. You don't have to believe in the devil. But, tell you, but you, can you honestly tell me that your shame is purely natural? Doesn't it almost take on a power? Doesn't it almost feel like it's a force? Years after you did the thing, doesn't it come back all of a sudden with a wave of, I can't change that and I can't live that down? Surely I'm not the only one, right? Yes, of course. And it's like, unless you do lots of mental gymnastics to live in denial, plug your ears, distract yourself, right? And actually... Most people on planet Earth have coping mechanisms to deal with their remorse, their regret, their shame, their sense of unworthiness, their sense of not belonging, their sense of being alone, their sense of not um, feeling like they fit. There's just lots of forms this takes. And I'm saying this is the work of the accuser. This is the work of the accuser. One thing that it creates is a desire to hide. We hide it. We hide what we're ashamed of from people. We hide what we're ashamed of from God. We even can get so into hiding that we start to hide from ourselves. I like to say that in addiction, the root, the root uh, thing that empowers addiction is, is lies. And so if you go really deep into an addiction you actually get to the place where you begin to believe your own lies. And uh, the way out of that is not just a repentance from the thing, but it's a a repentance from the lies. A a hardcore commitment to being honest is essential to get free. And I think if you go ahead, yeah. There is no shame in the kingdom of God. That's right. That's right. Well, I'll put it this way. There is no condemnation. Uh, Yeah, there is a healthy biblical shame. When you do the wrong thing for the wrong reason and you have the fear of the Lord, you'll feel a sense of shame about that. But that's that's not supposed to drive you then to self annihilation, but rather to repentance so that you can be cleansed both from the sin and from the stain of the sin. You know, it's a bad, unhealthy heart that can sin and feel fine. That's not a healthy heart. But it's, but it's also a bad and unhealthy thing when we are condemned for things we repented of years ago that are actually under the blood. And that's, you see, we'll get, we're going to end on Romans chapter 8, which is like the honey from the comb. That's like, if Romans, ah, oh shoot, I, remember, I don't remember, I think maybe it was uh, J- James Packer, first book I read as a Christian besides the Bible, I think, was his book, Knowing God. And I remember he had a chapter uh, <laughs> where he talked about Romans 8. And he's like, if Romans, if Romans is the sweetness, then Romans 8 is the honey and the comb of the, of the whole gospel. I agree with that. Like, it's, it's, it's so good that, that uh, I memorized it years ago. I probably don't have it memorized anymore. Um, 
Okay, my greatest struggle, you might be surprised. It's not, uh, an, it's not a temptation to look at porn. It's not a temptation to be greedy and rob a bank, although sometimes I am miserly, to be honest. I get a little miserly. Um, my great temptation is not to cheat on my wife. Uh, you know, things that I, I read about other pastors going, you know, I'm, by the way, I'm not suggesting that I'm incapable of those things. Anyone is capable of falling. But those are not things that I, like, deal with, am tempted by regularly. I'll tell you what's, what knocks me down, the thing I struggle with most, discouragement. Discouragement. Now, why do you suppose that is? Feeling like I've failed. Um, I, don't, I don't have words for you because, because it's not thoughts that then come. To, it's more feelings that come to me that then try to find thoughts to justify their presence. Uh, I would call it the ministry of the devil. That you didn't do your best. Um, or that your best wasn't good enough. You're digging almost deeper than I would dig. If I wrote you, I could read you some poems that I've written. Because one time I just let the devil uh, help me write a song, which backfired on him pretty nicely. I like that. I'll show you sometime. But that's, that's one of my strategies to fight against the devil, is to not fight against the devil. Just to let him say whatever he wants and then let Jesus answer him. Right? That works a lot better. Because if you're standing here with your clothes all disheveled and, disheveled and, and every, your things, yeah, what are you going to say? Uh, no, I'm great. I'm awesome. No, you're not. No. What, what, who's your answer? That's it. Okay. Well, that, we're going to get there. But my greatest struggle is not so much sin, and that's not true because, you know, the kind of heart that I'm talking about has sin to it. But my greatest struggle is not so much temptation, but discouragement. And then the, in the discouraged state, I can, I can miss it for a week at a time, a month sometimes. I suspect probably there might even been a year where I was serving God, but it wasn't what it could have been because I was down. And I don't mean I was sad. I mean like I was under something that I didn't need to live under. So yeah, and I already said this, but you don't even need to believe in the devil to, to testify to the power and the reality of his work in your life in terms of condemnation, accusation, shame, regret, and, and just, yeah, mm. I'm not, I feel like uh, I need more words. And I said this, but it causes us to draw away from God. If you remember Peter, Jesus shows up and there's a crowd and I love, I love this. Jesus looks over at Peter and says, hey, um, uh, let's get in your boat. So they go out just a little bit. And Jesus teaches the people from his fishing boat. And then when he's done with his little sermon... He says, uh, now cast your net, nets to the, out of the boat. And Peter's like, are you kidding me? Uh, just to let you know, we've been fishing all night. We haven't kept, caught a thing. But all right, roll of eyes, tosses the net over, pulls it in full, throws it out again, pulls it in full. His boat's full. His boat starts to sink. They call to his buddies. They bring out their boat. They fill that boat with fish. And Peter's first response is, when he sees all the fish, is what? Anybody remember? Get away from me, Lord. For I am a sinful man. Soon as he perceives he is in the presence of holiness, he says, I cannot have you seeing who I really am. Because there's something about a holy person that makes you feel exposed. <laughs> they say that Finney would walk through a factory and just look at people and they would immediately feel like, I got to change. <laughs> he wouldn't even say anything. They just looked at him and said, I have to change. I got to put away my alcohol or whatever it was. And I think that's normal. When, we're, when, we, when we have that undealt with shame on us, that undealt with stuff all over us, and we come into the presence of holiness, we go, uh-oh, get me out of here. Get me out of here. And, and actually what's interesting is... Um, Condemnation, condemnation, this feeling that you're not worthy, drives some people to rebellion. Some, this is me. When I grew up, I felt condemned. I felt unworthy. And I said, there's no way I can live up to this God. I quit. 
If I can't win, I'm going to quit, so I quit. So it drives some people to be younger brother, right? I'm going to, I cannot possibly do any of that. I'm out. I quit. Rebellion. I'm going to do it my way, I guess, because that isn't going to work for me. And then it drives some people into religion. Hear me. Condemnation drives people to try their hardest to please God, to, to get rid of that feeling of being unworthy. They try really hard to be worthy. It rarely drives people into God's arms. Condemnation. Condemnation is not the same as conviction, right? Isn't that fascinating that the devil's ministry makes some people rebellious and some people religious? Remember the end time deception Paul talks about? In the last days, there's going to be false teachers that by evil spirits teach false doctrines. And then when he tells you what the false doctrines are, it's what? They teach people to abstain from marriage and not eat certain foods that God has blessed that are meant to be received with thanksgiving. Wait a minute, what? The end time deception is legalism? The end time deception is just a whole bunch of rules? Wait a minute, the end time demonic deception is, is religion? Didn't see that coming. Isn't it crazy that the, that the accuser makes people more religious? But religion? That never makes you connect with the love of the Father. It's actually a way of hiding from the Father or trying to fig leaf your way into not being exposed before the Father. Or yourself. Yourself's a big one. Fig leaves aren't just for God or others. They're for yourself. We feel dirty. Uh, how many people, I, I just, I, when I was, I remember when I was in India, the Ganges River is considered holy. You know what they do? Well, it's true, they do put their dead bodies in there and they do wash their clothes in there, so it's not a particularly clean river. In fact, it's a very not clean river. But in their faith, it is the place where you wash away your sin. So they bathe in it. It's filthy, and, and you don't drink it, but, but they're not the only ones who, who intuitively want to go down into the river and wash away their sins. We do that. Isn't that our baptism? Their impulse is correct, isn't it? Like, it's like, okay, let's not make fun of them, that we have the same thing in ours. And it's, and it's testifying to some truth in here. But the, here's the problem. The river doesn't wash away the real location of the stain, does it? Because the problem's not in my body. It, it's pretty normal. And it, it, I think a lot of people who would, who've been sexually assaulted will tell you the first thing they do is shower. But the shower doesn't work because the stain is not in the body. It's in the soul. Right? Sinning stains your soul, but being sinned against can stain your soul. And all of us feel the stain. It's common and human. And what the enemy does is he says, I'm going to remind you of those things. I'm going to torment you about those things. Not just what you did, but what was done to you. That's his ministry, his primary ministry, which is why his name is Accuser. I've spent just about enough time on him, and I'm getting going to be done with it. Self-esteem boosting is not the answer. But it's, I think, one of the things our generation runs to as the answer. Let's take that behavior that you should repent of and let's tell you it's actually fine. In fact, let's make it celebrated. Let's take that perversion and tell you it's fine. Let's take that, that person who's not okay and let's tell them, actually, your problem is that you are amazing and you just don't believe that. Look in the mirror and tell yourself you're amazing. Guys, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. God esteem is different than self-esteem. Yeah, it's not good to have low self-worth, but I'm saying our problem's deeper than that to fix. It doesn't work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a, a strong statement, and that is this. None of the strategies 
that humans use to deal with their regret, their remorse, their shame, their sense of self-worth, their past, none of the standard human strategies to handle the work of the accuser works. None of it works. And it's part of the reason that we are, as a species, the praying mammal, meaning we're religious. Humans everywhere are religious. Everywhere we are religious. Buddhists are trying to get free. Hindus are trying to get free. Muslims are trying to get free. Some Christians are trying to get free. And then there's people who are free. (laughs) Because part two. The self-esteem isn't the answer. Cleansing the conscience. Now, how? how, What do you do about your your conscience? Well, in the scene that that we talked about of Zechariah 3, there's the accuser, but there's the advocate. We have an advocate, 1 John 2, 1. Could somebody just read me 1 John 2, 1? And then somebody else get me 1 John 4, 18. So raise your hand if you got 1 John 2, 1 for me, or if you were going to get it. That way I can assign someone else 1 John 4, 18. You're getting 1 John 4, 18? Thank you. 1 John 2, 1 says what? It's really hot in here tonight. I'm shocked no one's turned on the, uh, the fans so fast. 1 John 2.1. 2, one, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Yep. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. Why do we need an advocate, you guys? Because we have an accuser before the Father. So there's an accuser before the Father in the true temple in heaven. And I'm going to argue later that there's also a true temple on earth called your body, your mind, your soul, your heart. And the same thing that happens in heaven tends to be mirrored in your heart here on earth in a little micro version. We have an advocate in heaven, not just an accuser. We also have an advocate who would like to have that blood applied on earth. Okay, we'll get to that. Somebody want to read 1 John 4, 18? 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected. Fear has to do with, so the specific kind of fear that we're talking about here is not fear of heights, although I'm sure that Jesus could help us with that, but that's not the one he's worried about. The fear that Jesus' love deals with is primarily a fear of condemnation. It deals with the ministry of the devil, which takes our real sins and the sins done to us and holds them up before God in such a way that our conscience screams bloody murder. And something about God's perfect love that he's given us in Jesus strips that fear away. Why? Tell me why. You know why. You just don't know what I want you to say. I'm forgiven. It's not that I'm not guilty. It's that I am guilty and I'm forgiven and I will never be punished. And instead, I'm the recipient of his incredible, lavish affection. So now I have no fear of punishment. So now, perfect love has cast out my fear because I have an advocate and I know this advocate. So it doesn't matter what the person's shame is. I guess you could revisit it and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, inner healing prayer is not the thing achieving anything. All inner healing prayer is doing is taking our lies that we believe and receiving the truth of the gospel in those, in those specific locations. In fact, uh, it's less about an inner healing experience and it's more about the choice 
to surrender those lies and believe the truth. That's what it's about. It's just an application of, of, of the blood to this location. Jesus has dealt with the sin in history objectively. It's already, it's already paid. It's already forgiven in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. The, the Father is already on point with this. He sent Jesus. It was his idea to forgive. He, Jesus isn't paying off the Father. The Father loved you so much he sent Jesus to go absorb the cost because he wanted to have you back. So why don't we own it? We don't That's the question, him. isn't it? We don't know him enough. Why don't we own it? I don't have your answer to that. But that's a perfectly great, that's a really great question. Uh, I want to make a few points about accusation. When I receive criticisms, my temptation is to argue against those criticisms. And then I get a tight jaw and I get a resentful heart. And the best piece of advice I ever got was don't. Don't argue. Don't fight against it. Instead, lean into it. And say, Father, help me sort through this. Show me what's true here. There's something that happens when you go, hey, listen, I might be guilty, and that's fine. Hey, listen, this, my, the guy who hates me might be right. I might, might have been wrong. I, the, it's the opposite of what you would think would work. Right. What do you mean lean into the demonic attack on your soul? Yeah, do it. Lean into it. It takes away pride. It does take away pride, doesn't it? Oh, it's exhausting to try to fight against, against accusation. It's exhausting. It doesn't benefit. It doesn't work because I don't believe my own rhetoric. But when I lean into the thing and I say, okay, God, I can't sort this out. Will you show me what's true? Will you be my answer? Jesus, will you be my answer instead of me being perfect, being my answer? Will you be my answer? Something switches and it pulls the toxin out of the thing. So my advice would be don't argue against accusation. Admit that it is true or that at least it may be true and then let Jesus be your answer. Your answer. Get a little R at the end of that word. Okay, intercession. I didn't put this word in here. Um, There, oh, I didn't even have the verse. There's a verse in Hebrews that says Jesus is superior to the old covenant priests because they keep dying (laughs) and they have to be replaced with another generation of priests. But Jesus lives forever to make intercession for us. So because he lives forever, his priesthood is far superior. Now, when you hear that Jesus is making intercession for you, Stanley, what do you immediately think he's doing? Intercession, I'm just going to put it right here. That's actually a perfect answer. He's going on your behalf to the Father. The standard answer, this is, you actually gave the answer. I was like, yeah, that's, that's it. A lot of people, when they hear that, they go, oh, Jesus, that just means Jesus is praying for me. No, it doesn't. He might be praying for you, but that's not what it actually means. What it means is he, his very presence, his very presence with the Father is on your behalf. The scars in his hands, the wound in his side, the evidence of what he already did is, is making intercession for you. He's the, he's the lamb slain and he's the high priest and he offered himself on the cross and when he ascended back to the, to the Father, he sat down and he, he is, you remember the mercy seat? The Ark of the Covenant in the holy place, right? Here's the outer temple courts where you guys are allowed to come if you're Jewish, but not if you're Gentile. And then here's the holy place where only the priests are able to go. And you can see what they're doing, but you can't go in. And then there's like the super holy place only once a year, the Holy of Holies. And only once a year, only the high priest, one time on the Day of Atonement, offers the one spotless um, lamb, and it has to be perfect, the perfect lamb for the whole sin of the whole people. 
And then he goes in and offers the blood on the mercy seat, which is the Ark of the Covenant, where there's, a, where there's two cherubim made out of wood but overlaid with gold, and their wings are doing this. And it's right there that he sprinkles this. Now, in heaven, that's the, in, in, in the Old Testament, that's God's throne. That is God's throne. So they're sprinkling the blood of this lamb that's slain on the throne once a year to, to completely remove the guilt of the whole, the whole nation. Now, Jesus, after having offered himself, the real high priest, on the cross, as, offered himself as the lamb. That's amazing. He's the priest and the lamb. After he offered himself on the cross, he ascended back to the Father into the true holy of holies, which is the Father's throne, and he sat down at his throne on the Father's right hand side. As that sl- He is making intercession right now, whether he says a word or not, or whether he prays anything, because he is the Lamb, his very presence in heaven as your representative, because he became a full human. He lived as your representative. His victory was like David's victory against Goliath. Nobody else had to fight, just David. When David defeated Goliath, boom, it was over. His, Jesus' victory in the cross was a representative victory in the same way that Adam's sin in the garden was a rep- representative failure. He plunged all of us into sin. Jesus plunged all of us into fellowship with God. So now his, so when it says he makes intercession for us, does he pray? Well, I think he probably does. But that's not the point of that word. The point of that word is that his very presence right now with the Father is already a, a covenant-saving reality for you and I. And, and here's, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, the blood speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus, Hebrews 12, 24, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's brother Cain killed him, and then God came to Cain later and says, how's Abel doing? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And then finally God's like, actually, the jig's up, bro. Like, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This is Genesis 6, right? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What do you think that blood was crying out? I need vengeance. I'm an innocent man slain. Vindicate me. Make this right. Right this wrong. Abel's blood was crying out for condemnation. Abel's blood was crying out, payback, justice. And the author of Hebrews says the blood of Jesus is in heaven. And every single time the father looks to his, right? This way, for you guys. Let me see if I can do it. Every single time he looks to his right, he sees the lamb slain. He sees his son. And the son's presence in heaven is constantly crying out without prayers at all. His presence, his very presence, is constantly crying out, forgive. For my sake, forgive. Forgive Tim. Accept Tim. Help Tim. Support Tim. Be faithful to Tim. Keep your promise to to Tim for my sake. Because I'm the man in covenant with you, Father. Jesus is the man in covenant. God, God the Father made a covenant with Jesus that he will never break. And I'm in Jesus. And so all God's of faithfulness to Jesus that he deserves comes to me as a gift. And so the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is like... So when you go to God and you say, forgive me, even though I don't deserve it, you, you, like the reality is like, now if I can say this the right way, we never want to go to God with a presumptuous attitude. But we're not asking him to forgive us for our own sake, so to speak. We're asking him to forgive us for Jesus' sake. He's keeping his promise to Jesus. He's being faithful to Jesus to accept you. There's, there's keeping power in this gospel. There's keeping power. There's, there's, a place in, there's a place in Christ where you live beyond condemnation to where when you realize you've sinned, you can simply bring it under, you can bring your conscience under the blood so quickly that you, you can bypass condemnation altogether. 
You can do the sin, conviction, repentance thing and never even go into condemnation. That's, like, that's, that's one of the things the Holy Spirit empowers in our lives. The Holy Spirit is present in such a way. That part of the reason I think that, that one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is, is great joy is because he brings home a clean conscience. He brings home assurance that I'm his, that he's mine. Okay, so back up to the two temples that matter. Uh, no, I'm sorry, the glory of forgiveness. Forgiveness is like the beginning of the Christian life, and, and, I, and, and I think it's easy to be like, cool, I'm forgiven of my sins. Moving on. We, we are never supposed to get over that. The glory of forgiveness, it, it, it can be, it can be such a beautiful reality that, uh, <laughs> that you become a happy Christian. Just the glory of forgiveness alone. Do you remember the story of Simon who threw a party for Jesus? And then Jesus comes, and while he's at Simon's house, here comes a sinful woman. And the sinful woman starts to offend everyone. First thing she does is what? She comes straight over to Jesus. And she greets him with a kiss. Already, everyone's like, no, Jesus, what are you doing letting her do that? Then, the way they have their tables set up in ancient Israel at Jesus' time is the tables are real low to the ground. And they lay on these pillows on their side, and they just kind of reach in with their hand and take the food from a common bowl. So, like, everyone's kind of spooning, <laughs> you know. It's a, I'm sorry, but, like, it's a little funny to me. They're kind of spooning, right? They're all... They're all um, uh, anchovied up, you know. They're all, like, right up next to each other in, in a little... And she, that's why she's able to wash his feet. His feet aren't like, she's not crawling around under a table. She comes up and, okay, there's his feet. And she starts to cry, drips her tears on his feet. Then she does this crazy thing. She takes out a bottle of perfume that costs an entire year's wages. So, like, figure that out. Somewhere, for us, probably somewhere between twenty-five dollars and $120,000 for most of us. Somewhere in that range. She busts open this expensive perfume and pours the whole thing on his feet and that makes everybody uncomfortable. Like, you could have sold that. You don't understand what kind of good ministry you could have done with that. Like, what are you doing? And Simon, the host, who is like a super religious dude, he's the most offended. Now, he doesn't say a word, but Jesus has words of knowledge. Jesus has the gifts of the Spirit. Jesus operates in the gifts of the Spirit. You know that, right? We all know that. Jesus operates in the gifts of the Spirit. So he knows what Simon is thinking. By virtue of a gift of the Spirit, not by virtue of his Godness, he put aside his heavenly prerogatives, Philippians 2. By virtue of a gift of the Spirit, he knows what Simon's thinking. And he says, Simon, let me ask you a question. Two people uh, are forgiven, one of a small debt, one of a big debt. Who loves more? I suppose the one who had the greater debt canceled. Hmm. I wonder if we know the glory of forgiveness. I wonder if we know how great the debt is that we have had canceled. Some of us, you know, we've never really worked hard enough on our sin problem to realize how deep it goes. <laughs> We're still only playing. When you realize how deep it goes and that you're forgiven before you're even fully free of the thing, it's like I, for I was perfectly forgiven at age 19. I've sinned a lot since then. Not on purpose, most of the time. But I never fell out of forgiveness. I was in forgiveness the whole time. Not one time did I ever fall out of God's forgiveness from then till now. There's a, there's a weight of evidence that God's so for me and so good and so merciful and so kind. And, it's, and if the only blessing I ever really paid close attention to was how much he's forgiven me, dude, that's enough to make me fall head over heels in love with him. Plus, if you look around the room and you think you see people who are worse sinners than you, wow, you're an idiot. You know your own heart well enough to know your sins pretty intimately, but you don't know theirs. In terms of your own expert testimony, you should be the biggest sinner in the room, at least what you're aware of. But Simon feels the opposite. Simon thinks he's a good guy and she's a bad one. And Jesus says, uh, she knows she's a bad one. You don't know. Because she knows who she is, 
she knows who I am and she knows mercy and she's been forgiven much and because she's been forgiven much, she loves. She loves me so much. You sit here thinking you're a good person so you have no clue who you are and you have no clue who I am and you, you're the one deceived. Because Simon's over there saying, oh, if this man were a prophet, he would know. Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not deceived. You are deceived. Simon was a worse sinner than she was. He just was a respectable sinner. Respectable sins go deeper. They're harder to find, and they usually go deeper into the soul. Carnal sins are easier to discern, and they're easier to repent of. Easier to repent of. Respectable sins are harder to snoot out, and they usually go deeper. Who's the worst sinner, the Pharisees or the, or the tax collectors and prostitutes? Anyone hear me? You hear me? Yeah. These people over here, they're like, yeah, I really shouldn't do this, and I really wish I could stop. And these people over here, they can literally justify their hatred and feel like they're good people at night. And by they, maybe, maybe we, maybe. It is the opposite of natural human thinking. So the glory of forgiveness. Here's another example of the glory of forgiveness. Jesus shows up. There's a man who's paralyzed. His friends bring him. They want Jesus to heal him. They love him. I love that story. I love everything about that story. Uh, they bring him. Jesus takes a look at him, and what does he say? Son? Not yet. Son? Your, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He's laying there on the ground. But Jesus addresses the greatest need he has. The greatest need he had is not his physical healing. You can be happy in a wheelchair. You can be depressed with like a, a perfectly chiseled physique and 20-20 eyesight and a big extra house and a big boat and miserable, wishing you were dead. You can be Johnny Erickson Tata, being infectiously given away joy and hope and faith and peace to people because you know the Lord. So the Pharisees, they hear him, and they go, forgiveness of sin. Who does this guy think he is? Son, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus says this, which is easier for me to say to him, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk, take your mat and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you don't have to see whether it happened in the natural. So it's a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven. It's a lot harder to say, take your mat and go, because then they go, oh, it didn't work, or, you know? But so that you may know. Look at the motivation. It's almost like he's saying, the reason I'm healing him is just to make y'all know that I have the authority to forgive him, which is far more important. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Son, pick up your mat, go home. And the guy gets up, takes his mat, and walks home. And then the Pharisees are like, we've got to kill that guy. <laughs> Interesting response to the sermon. <laughs> But which is, like, which is the greater miracle? The forgiveness or the healing? The forgiveness. The forgiveness is a, a, an infinitely greater miracle. It's an eternal miracle. And even if there's no eternity, even if when you're dead, you're dead, it's still a bigger miracle. Because you are more than your body. And your life is in, uh, like, way more than just how your body feels. Now, Am I glad Jesus healed his body? Yes, I am. And would I like Jesus to heal more people's bodies through me? Yes, I would. But, but don't, let's not miss the glory of forgiveness. And what is forgiveness again, guys? It's getting free of all this side of the equation. Sin and accusation and condemnation and shame and guilt, all that weight, all that stuff comes off. Oh, I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm clean. I'm alive. I'm loved. So the two temples that matter, I think I can talk about this now. The temple in heaven and the temple on earth. The blood of Jesus deals with the temple in heaven with objectively dealing with our guilt before God. Okay? In other words, if you sin against me, I can forgive you 
And that's me saying, you're not guilty. But if you don't forgive it, I mean, if you don't accept my forgiveness, that's shame. So on my end of the equation, you sin against me, guilt. But on your end, it's shame. In the temple in heaven, Jesus has achieved freedom from the guilt of our sin. We are declared not guilty. But everyone knows in this room, don't we? That it's possible to be forgiven by God, but walk around still feeling ashamed as though we are not forgiven. That's the temple in heaven it's dealt with, but the temple on earth, we haven't applied the blood to the conscience so that we're walking in the glory of forgiveness. And that's a big deal. That's a, and that's, that was y'all's question. Or somebody asked that question earlier. Like, why don't we receive it? Or... So walking in, the, walking in the spirit, say more words about that. Having the mindset of Christ will free us from, from guilt. Condemnation. Condemnation. We'll know the love of Christ as opposed to the love, perverted love of man. So Romans 8 is where I want us to end. So if you have Bibles, please turn to Romans 8. The temple in heaven, you're clean. You're free. God's not against you. He's not holding your sins against you. It's already dealt with. You're not guilty. But what about the temple on earth, the temple of your body? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you, actually, the, the, whole, the whole book of Hebrews is about this. The whole book of Hebrews is about this. Over and over, if you just look up the phrase, draw near to God in Hebrews, and you look at how it's used, The whole point of Jesus' sacrifice, according to Hebrews, is so that we can finally draw near to God. And it's not saying uh, the problem is on God's side of that equation. That's a fascinating thing to me. Hebrews is not dominated with the idea of God's wrath against us being dealt with. Hebrews is dominated by the idea, okay, if I could use some big words, Propitiation, it's a big $5 word. God's anger at sin removed. Hebrews isn't worried about that so much. Hebrews is worried about expiation, our defilement of conscience cleansed. You can read any of that. Hebrews is obsessed with expiation, which is when you sin, it messes you up, and then you don't draw near to God. And then when you don't draw near to God, you don't experience God and know God and walk with God and live with God and have the inside-out new covenant reality you're meant to have. And he's like, the, whole, the, the author of Hebrews is like, this is the whole point of the cross. This is the whole point of the new covenant. This is the whole point of everything is to get God in you. How's that ever going to happen if every time God shows up on the mountain, the Jews run away? Which is, what they did, which is what they did. They even said, Moses, you go. We're terrified. And then Moses is like, you know, constantly face palming and throwing things and breaking things. And then he had a hard time. He had a hard life. <laughs> he was like a parent with a million kids in the desert. <laughs> it's like, it's like, a, like a, what was that movie, that Chevy Chase, uh, Griswold family vacation across the country? <laughs> That's like Moses in the wilderness with that lampoon. Oh, and then God occasionally is like, I'm just going to kill him and start over. And then Moses has, then flips teams and says, no, God, don't do it. Okay. But the author of Hebrews is like, the problem, the problem is that we run away from God. But if, but, but if, if instead of the blood of bulls and goats, which reminds you of your sin every year, that every year you go up and we have to kill an animal every year right in front of you because you sinned. So now we got to kill this goat, and it's screaming out of a hole in its throat. Trust me, we slaughtered a goat for a goat roast. That made it real for me. My friend Peter uh, led the goat in a sinner's prayer in the back of the Volkswagen uh, on our way over to John and Don Showalter's backyard to slaughter it. And my, <laughs> this is a true story. 
And I was like, Peter's the craziest man I know. He's like, now, do you acknowledge that you're a sinner goat? That goat had fear in his eyes the whole time. Like, that goat knew something was wrong the whole time. And then she, like, screamed out of the hole in her throat as she bled out. And we all felt horrible to our stomachs. And then she was also not very good meat because she was old. And so she was tough, too. So, like, and probably stressed out because we killed her the Bible way with a knife. This is going on the Internet? Oh, my goodness. And, like, that, I, never, I never viewed the Old Testament sacrifices the same after that. So every single year, when, or actually not just every year, like, not just annually, regularly when you went up to the Lord's presence, you had a keen sense, I'm a sinner, he's holy, something has to die. So you get reminded. This is supposed to make me ceremonially clean, but what it's reminding them of, Hebrews says this, that the blood of bulls and goats, instead of cleansing their consciences, actually reminded them of sin. But the blood of Jesus, shed once for all time, makes perfect forever those who are being made holy and it cleanses the consciences of those who now draw near to God. So now we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith. And instead of being reminded that we're, that we're sinners every year as we kill a goat, we are reminded of the love of God and the acceptance of God and the mercy of God that's permanent and doesn't need to be repeated anymore. And we go, oh, and we draw near. It's far superior. Okay, Romans 8 starts with there is now no condemnation. If that's the ministry of the, of the evil one, accusation, one of the primary ministries of Jesus in our conscience, in our lives, in our psychology daily, is the ministry of acceptance, the ministry of forgiveness, the ministry of being for you, the ministry of, of, of promoting and filling and supporting you, not accusing you, defending you, not condemning you, accepting you, cleansing you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's just skip down to the, the, like the, the apex, which is verse 31 and following. What shall we say about all these wonderful things? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? So God is the judge in the courtroom, right? So we're standing before the judge and the enemy... The accuser comes to, to accuse us. And, and we look up at the judge and it's our dad. And he's 100% for you. Please eliminate from your theology the idea that Jesus saved you from the Father. It's not true. The Father sent his son to save you from sin and death. Not from himself, from sin and death. So you look up you're standing in the courthouse and you go, what? It's my father. So he says this. If God is for you, who can be against you? If the judge is your dad, what's going to happen now? And then look at who, then who's going to condemn you? If God's for you, who can ever be against you? Since he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up, what? His son. The be, the, he loves his son more than anything. The son is his ultimate treasure in the whole universe. He gave his son to save you. Look at his logic. His logic isn't, he gave you his son, you better do something, or he's going to smack you. That is a lot of people. A lot of people feel that way. A lot, they, I hear him. They sing songs. Well, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Really? At the glory of his love, you want to turn around and turn guilt into this thing right away on the first next sentence? Y'all make me want to slap you. We need to change that song. Is it true? Yes. But is it what we should be singing? Probably not. Jesus paid it all. Jesus gave it all. All to him I'll freely give. Holy cow, he's amazing. Holy cow, you know what I mean. All to him I owe. We just, man, we've turned that into a guilt thing. He died for me and I can't even get up out of bed early and pray. I'm so bad. Oh, my word. Why are you listening to the devil? You're back into the wrong side of the board again. I didn't read my Bible yesterday. I missed my quiet time. I'm a bad Christian. I can't be filled with the Holy Spirit today. I better go back home and pray it, get prayed up again. Dude, you're permanently on this side of the board. You don't have to go home and get prayed up to get prayed up. Just believe again and you're prayed up. You can get prayed up right now in two seconds by remembering what he, who he is and for you and in you. you know, it's not a three-month process of getting back to God. 
If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for, for us all, won't he give us everything else? He's not viewing Jesus as the, he did all that, now it's on to you. He views that as the indication of God's permanent heart attitude toward you. Isn't that an amazing verse? If he gave you his son, what else would he possibly not give you? Anything else he gives you is like a minor sacrifice compared to that. He gave you his biggest, his greatest treasure. He can't love anything more than his son. There was nothing that hurt the father as much as letting our sin do its worst. Satan's sin and demons do their worst to his son. The father suffered in heaven greatly while the son was suffering on the cross. The Holy Spirit suffered greatly while the son was suffering. And we say, the father turned his face away. The father poured out his wrath on Jesus. We're picturing the thing so wrong. The father was suffering as Satan and sin did their worst to Jesus. The father suffered for you. Not on the cross, but the father suffered in heaven while his son endured the cross. Okay. He's not going to withhold anything from you, that you that's possibly that's for your good. This is build some confidence, man. Build some confidence in God's goodness. He's not going to withhold anything good from you that is for your good. And if he does withhold anything from us that we think is for our good, we just don't know as well as he does. Okay, I got to keep reading. Who dares accuse us for whom God has chosen now? Wait a minute. Are you saying that Jesus silences the voice of the accuser? In the courtroom of heaven? Yes, you are saying that. You are saying Romans 12. Or, yeah, you are, you are saying Revelation 12. That the accuser of the brethren, who accuses the saints before the, before the throne room day and night, has been cast down. That's how I read it. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Next verse, no one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. So who will condemn us? Answer, nobody. Nobody. For Christ died for us and was raised for us, and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading or making intercession for us. I love the for us, all three of those. Died for us, raised for us, sits at the Father's right hand, for us. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? What about trouble, calamity, persecution, hunger? What if we're destitute and in danger and threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, we're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Don't you love how he connects our victory to God's love for us? I just hit the mic. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Not death, not life, not angels, not demons, not our fears of today or worries about tomorrow. None of the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above, no power in the earth below. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have an accuser. But friends, we have an advocate. This ministry is relevant. We have, if we swim in this, if we let the glory of forgiveness, if we let the glory of Jesus as our high priest, if we let this really mess with us, we'll start to smell when other people need some of this. When you get free of something, you start to notice when people need to get free of something. There's people all over the world, and you bump into them regularly, and the devil's eating their lunch with shame, guilt, condemnation, remorse, and regret. Sometimes it's you and me. And sometimes we need each other to apply the blood in the temple here on earth, our conscience. There's this song I love. I'm going to read you some of the lyrics. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands, my name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead, his blood atone for all our race. 
His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Right up in heaven, right? Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour out effectual prayers. What pours out effectual prayers? His wounds. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. I just want to sing it. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. What, what, who, what's crying this? The wounds. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. And then I wrote a chorus to it. You're our high priest. You offered up yourself. You're our high priest and you conquered death and hell. The father hears him pray. His dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood. His spirit answers to the blood. This is Romans 8, 16. Our sp- his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're God's kids. Psh. His spirit answers to the blood. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. Final verse. To God, I'll sing it. To God I'm reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. So that's the conclusion of the matter. Now I can draw near and he's my daddy. I was feeling one day like my life was just worthless and like, what's the point of my life? Why did God make me? I was like frustrated that God made me. I don't like me. I'm miserable. My life is horrible. I wish I hadn't been born. Uh, so I called up my pastor friend. I had, I think I called three, my three mentors. And I explained everything to him and he was cheerful and encouraging and merciful and kind. Did I, said He didn't do anything wrong. But he was no help. Uh, I hung up. Wished that had helped. It didn't. The more I talked about it, the more I felt it even more strongly as I expressed it. And uh, called my next friend. Called my next friend. He was equally wonderful. Supportive. Gave me biblical truth. Didn't do anything wrong. Didn't help at all. Called my third friend. Uh, He's more of a jerk. So he was way more helpful. And uh, I don't know if that's funny to you, but it's a little funny to me. He's just more of a jerk. And so there's more iron sharpening iron and a little less like sweetness and cuteness and friendliness and just a little bit more sparks flying. And he's arguing with me. Why did God make me? uh, Westminster Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Your existence is for two reasons. You're here to enjoy God. And by enjoying him, glorify him stop asking dumb questions and do what jesus said me yeah but i don't i don't understand i don't like me i don't like my life your answer is right it's theologically right but i don't care and i just kept arguing with him until finally he got so mad he stopped arguing with me and he started yelling at satan he starts yelling over the phone, Satan, you unhand my brother. You release him in Jesus' name. Unhand his mind. You have no right. You have no authority to be lying to him this way. It's, none of it is true. And he's under the blood. He's a child of God. He has hope. And if he starts going off. And the whole thing went off. It just left. It broke off my shoulders. My heart started to break. I started to weep. The thing that was in... He, he absolutely crushed it. Because he realized my thoughts weren't my thoughts. My feelings weren't coming from me. They were coming at me. My beliefs weren't my beliefs. They were things I was, I was under a ministry of condemnation. And he, instead of arguing with me, went at the enemy. And I'm not trying to give you that as a magic bullet at all. But I'm saying sometimes we don't realize there's a spiritual battle that we're, going, that we're, that we're fighting in. And, uh, I mean, I remember John Bevere, he talks about this one a lot in his book, Breaking Intimidation, which is a fantastic book, where he talks about learning to be assertive in the spirit, where he talks about learning to get our fight in the spirit. 
and to get like serious and not yell against, not yell at people, not fight against people because flesh and blood isn't our main problem. We're to love our enemies, right? So they're not, we don't fight against our, our human enemies. We love our human enemies, but we have a spiritual enemy we're not called to love. We have a spiritual enemy we're called to rebuke. We're called to curse. We're, we're called to defy we're called to deny those things that try to take hold of our brain and drag us down into despair. We're supposed to get feisty and declare some stuff over our lives. We're hearing this low-level thing of, I'm going to fail, I'm always going to blah, blah, blah. No way. I'm going to be a blessed man. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to get God's results. The Holy Spirit's going to flow through me. The kingdom's going to be established through my life. Stanley's going to prophesy over so many people. He's going to have so much mercy for so many people. The kingdom's advancing through Stanley. The kingdom will advance through Stanley. He's never going to flame out. He's never going to burn out. He's never going to fall away. He's never going to go through a season where he goes into sin and screws up his witness. He's going to be faithful to the end. All of his days, he's going to fill people with the light and life. He's going to know God better and better and better. And then he's going to go home to heaven. Speak it, see that? You felt that? Like, we need to get feisty because it's a spiritual battle. And we're actually listening to condemnation. We're not admitting to others or even to ourselves because the enemy's just jack, yak, 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 yak. Okay, I thought I was done, but I had to say that too. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs>